I suppose it has always been a part of Southern attire, but have you noticed that just lately, camouflage has become quite the fashion statement? (laughs) Just go into Walmart and see uh, all of the camouflage that's available to wear and special shrines that have been placed there to remind us of this family in Louisiana that has been become quite successful at the selling of Duck Dynasty in our, uh, in our culture. It's a fascinating thing, it is, to think about to think about how we are affected by reality TV. And to think about this show in particular, that scripts, and you heard me say that, scripts, lest you think that this is a non-scripted version of what goes on in this family, that scripts the rags-to-riches story of a family that has made millions of dollars selling duck calls. Whoever thought that could be the case? (laughs) This scraggly group, Phil and Cy and Willie and Jace, all with beards down to hair, you know, and Carrie and Missy and, and Kay and all the rest of them laying their lives out before us to enjoy and grimace at, we're fascinated by the little window that we have looking in upon them. Have you noticed that at the end of every show, no matter what has gone on, no matter what divisiveness might have occurred and the splinters and thinking, that everyone ends up at Miss Kay's table. Have you noticed that? Come on, admit it. You watch this show. Come on. Some of you are trying not to shake your heads. They end up at Miss Kay's table, and the feast, of course, is just bounteous. Um, As she shares things that I would like to sit down and eat myself, but as the family is gathered round It is one big happy family, you know. It's sort of the forgetting of all of this other refuge. And they even enter into a time of prayer. Where else does this happen on TV, friends? Where else does this happen on TV? And they unite their hearts, and they move into this gracious meal. All gathered at the table. All gathered at the table. This is something that we struggle with, this idea of everybody coming to the table. Helmut Tillichy, this German theologian of a few years past, rose to his own fame and renown in post-war Germany. He began to speak with authority about the scripture and about the church. And so, especially among mainline denominations, he became the invite, 
not just in Europe, but all around the world. He traveled extensively, sharing his thoughts on what it meant to be Christian. And people welcomed him in. It was in 1963, the summer that year, that his travels took him to Los Angeles. Strangely enough, another person of world renown was present in Los Angeles. You might know the name Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was having one of his famous crusades. In fact, when word reached Billy Graham that Helmut Tillichy was in town, immediately he sent a representative from his campaign to Helmut Tillichy's door and said, would you join us in this crusade? It would be an honor to have you on the platform. And when Helmut Tillichy received this invitation, he says in his writings that at first he was put off by just the whole idea of it. He said the thing that was most disturbing to him was the numbers of people that were gathering to look and to listen to Billy Graham. Didn't have anything to do about what he was saying so much. It had a lot to do with the last time Helmut Tillichy had been around such mass, masses of people. Because in Germany, before World War II, Helmut Tillichy had seen the Nazi idea of how crowds could gather. And his atrocious leader, what damage could be done when you get people to thinking in certain ways. Helmut Tillichy had to think and pray over it, but finally he made the decision at Billy Graham's insistence to go and to sit on the platform. And as he reflected about his experiences there that evening, he said first that it was a time of great penance for him for all that he had seen, for all that he had been a part of even. It was a penance for the world and very, very freeing for him that evening. He was given an opportunity to speak at the podium just briefly himself by the gracious nature of Billy Graham. But he said it was just the wholeness of the evening that impressed itself upon his life. He went so far as to write this. He said, not only was it a profound penance experience, but that in having this experience, he said, we learn, as we preachers do, taking that collective pronoun, we learn, as we refer to ourselves learning, we learn to see ourselves as various dabs of paint upon the incredibly colorful palette of God. Now, let me read this again. Listen to these words. These are profoundly important words. We learn to see ourselves as various dabs of paint upon the incredibly colorful palette of God. Helmut Tillichy was seeing himself and he was seeing the life of Billy Graham 
and all of the others that were gathered in, them, in that place as being this multitude of what God had meant to be there. That particularly is important to hear coming from a German who had been preached to by a leader in that country with a very different philosophy. You remember, don't you? You remember? You remember? John Wesley, when he was thinking about Methodism, he wrote something in his journal that is so surprising. It seems even out ahead of where we are today in our understanding of Methodism, which is strange because this was written 250 years ago. Now, come on. Listen to these words directly from the pen of the founder of the Methodist Church. I subjoined a short account of Methodism, particularly insisting on the circumstance there is no other religious society under heaven which requires nothing of men in order to their admission into it, but a desire to save their souls. Look all around you. You cannot be admitted into the church, talking about the Anglican church there, or society of the Presbyterians, or the Anabaptists, the Quakers, or any others unless you hold the same opinions with them and adhere to the same mode of worship. The Methodists alone do not insist on your holding this or that opinion, but they think and let think. Neither do they impose any particular mode of worship, but you may continue to worship in your former manner, be it what it may. Now, I do not know any other religious society, either ancient or modern, wherein such liberty of conscience is now allowed or has been allowed since the age of the apostles. Here is our glorying, and a glorying peculiar to us. What society shares it with us? Did you know that about the Methodist church? You may have come to be a Methodist thinking to yourself, well, Methodists all act a certain way, look a certain way, talk a certain way. Oh, my friend, this was never Wesley's design. For he gathered with all who would sit down at the table with him and dialogue and commune in the Lord's presence. There are some who believe today that the church should be limited in who gathers at the table. Carefully even naming those who might should be excluded from the table, you know, there are some in every age that have an idea of whom Jesus might have wanted to invite to the table. You and I must remember the nature of who we are gathered to this table. Were you listening when Ryan was listening, reading the scripture for us just a few moments ago? Did you hear the very nature of Jesus laying it out before his disciples. This is my bread. 
my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. But you know the context of all of that, don't you? Don't you remember who was gathered at the table? I mean, there were some real scoundrels gathered at that table, right? Come on, do you think Jesus didn't know who they were? He was the one that whispered and said, I mean, amidst you, there is one that's going to betray me. There is one that is going to deny me. Who, me? Who, me? Do you think, you think Jesus didn't know who was at the table? He knew who was at the table. The very nature of what the church is about is this open table, this open table, this table for the world to come and gather. Not a regulated table, not a regulated table. Jesus wouldn't have it that way. Everybody gathers at the table because until we come to the table, frankly, folk, we don't know the line of saintliness and sinfulness that runs through our very being as individuals. I love the words of the poet Robinson Jeffers. He says, is it not by his high superfluousness that we know our God? For to equal a need is natural, animal, Mineral, but to fling rainbows over the sun and beauty above the moon and secret rainbows on the domes of seashells. Not even the weeds to multiply without blossom, nor the birds without music. Is it not by his high superfluousness we know our God? You and I are his high superfluousness. Don't you get it? You and I are the colors of the rainbow that Jesus wishes to gather at his table. The world might look at the church and might think they all look the same, they all act the same. You and I are sent out by Christ to prove that anybody can sit down and fellowship together. Don't you wish that Washington could get that word? <laughs> I've always thought that I was pretty normal, you know? Um, I, as I think about myself, I think of myself as, as just being just kind of normal, a normal guy, normal looking, normal talking, normal acting. I went just a few years ago to visit at an elementary school. I, it had been requested that some persons throughout the community would come in and read children's books to the classes in the elementary school. It was Dr. Seuss Day. I'm, I imagine schools are still doing that, but I jumped at the opportunity and took a book or two of my own and read them, Dr. Seuss, and also another book that Sue and I particularly uh, enjoy that is about gargoyles, and uh, it's a delightful little book, but I never expected after that um, celebration with the second grade class where I had been stationed, I never expected to 
receive anything more from it, but a week later, I received this envelope that was packed full of little notes of thank you from that class. It was so meaningful. All of these words printed carefully, you know, onto that lined paper that has the little dots so that you make sure that your lowercase doesn't get above where it should, you know. And I I opened this envelope and I I read through all of those notes and, and just reveled in the experience once again. There was one of those notes that I could not get rid of when it came time to part with them. I still have it to this day. You see it was colored with crayons at the top. Um, Let me read it for you. It says, Dear Mr. Reverend Bagwell, thank you for reading to us. You make me laugh. When you read Gargoyle and when your glasses be on your face, it makes me laugh. And I like the way your glasses be near your ears. They be sticking out. <laughs> That's why you make me laugh. And, and, and oh, I like the shine on your head. You are nice and sweet, and I like your voice. You got a sweet voice. First, I thought you were Dr. Seuss. <laughs> And when I look at you, I said in my mind that you look young. I like that part. <laughs> Thank you. I love you, it says. And I, and I thought to myself, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not so normal after all. <laughs> you know, maybe there's something about me, you know, me, that is particular. So particular that... It would take someone like Jesus to fully accept and to welcome in to the table. Have you considered the fact that all of us are particular like that? Oh, so incredibly powerful to receive this invitation from Jesus to his table, to his table. He gave us the invitation. Knowing who we are? Come on, knowing who we are. How could he do that? Knowing who we are. I was a student at Candler School of Theology up at Emory, and we had to make it through days without having a chapel per se. They were building Canon Chapel at the time that I was a senior there. And I can still remember them driving pilings into the ground right outside of our classroom. Have you ever been around someone driving pilings? It is not a pleasant experience. It, you, only, you not only get the sound, you, the ground itself Shakes. I mean, Bishop's Hall was, was reverberating with the building of Canon Chapel. They didn't finish it. That was sort of the coup de grace. I mean, they didn't finish it before we left that year. And so it was about a, a year and a half later that I went back to the school for a visit and 
went to see this beautiful new addition to the campus. And I was standing there and looking it over when the, when the caretaker of the chapel, Helen Pearson, walked out the door and saw me. And she said, she said, Bill, she said, she said, isn't it beautiful? I said, it's astounding. It's, and it's just so different and so fresh. And she said, would you like to see the rest of it? And I said, I would. And so she showed me through. And finally, we wove our way through the hallways and into the actual sanctuary. And, and she said, I know you're wondering about this. I said, well, I, you know, it was interesting where everybody would be seated because it was seating on so many different levels and in so many different places. And she said, what do you think about the color? And I said to her, I said, what do you mean color? There is no color. She said, right. She said, there is no color. I said, it's just cement. She said, right, it's just cement. And I, I thought, I don't get it. But she went on and she said, she said, we planned it that way. I said, I know you had to construct the building. I, she said, no, we planned it to have no color in this place. I said, why? She said, I wanted you to ask that. She said, because when we have church here, she said, you should see it light up. Even a speck of color shows up in this room. When people gather in this place, you see all the color that they bring with them on their skin and on their clothes. Everything about them is the most beautiful. It could ever be because it's on the backdrop of a canvas that has not yet been painted. Does that remind you of his high superfluousness? Sue and I went to our daughter's graduation from seminary and our son-in-law's graduation from seminary up in Washington, and when we were there, we went to the National Cathedral. It was a glorious place, but we also had really intended and wanted to make time for the National Gallery of Art. Those buildings that are closed right now, let me remind those that may be listening. We went there, and because we had been there before, but our time was so limited. I can remember us running with our girls in hand through the National Gallery of Art, and I was shouting, there's a Mozart, there's a Van Gogh. There, the closing time was coming, you know, and we just didn't get to see things. And Sue said, I want to go back and spend time. And so we went there, and we were in search of some things that we had seen just briefly before that are in residence there. And one thing that we particularly wanted to see was Salvador Dali's painting of The Last Supper. Do you, do you know that painting? And do you know that it's, it's there in the National Gallery in the, it would be the East Wing, I guess it is there. And we went in search of it and found it. And we just stood mesmerized before this painting that is almost like seeing the way that the gospel writer John wrote his words of remembrance about Jesus. But this beautiful, beautiful painting, 
And I just couldn't take it all in, and so I kept getting closer and closer to it. I even, I, I took my glasses off. When I get things close to me, I have to take my glasses off. And I was getting closer and closer, and I was just about to point and show something to Sue when this guard grabbed me by the shoulder and said, sir, you are far too close to this painting. And I looked and I said, I am, I am sorry. And, and she said, you must step back. And, and so I stepped back and then she got a little kinder with her words and, and she looked at me and she said, in fact, she said, step back here. She said, there's some things that you can't see in this painting until you're a little distance away from it. And I said, what? She said, oh yeah, she said, look at it again now from about 15 feet back and see that the dove that Salvador Dali had painted, the descending dove, could not be seen from up close. You have to take in the whole picture. Now let me ask you today, you're coming to communion in this place, but I want you to step back for a moment and realize what it really is all about, okay? Because it is not only about us coming into this sacred space to receive our redemption. But it is about the way in which Christ invites everyone, everyone into this place. One of the beautiful things about this community is that everyone really does have this complexity to it. In Statesboro, with this great university just across the street from us, we are blessed with a universal culture. I thought only South Georgia folk went into Harvey's. I was in Harvey's this week. Somebody was speaking on their cell phone, and I do believe they were speaking Swahili. I don't know what the language was. <laughs> I don't know what the language was. But I thought, this is wonderful to be in this kind of community. Even more so to be in a church that has embraced the idea that it is not about our sameness. It is about our diversity, Christ's diversity. What Christ seeks to affirm in us as his people. This is who we are. This is who we are. This unbelievable thing, this superfluousness, this colorful palette of God. I invite you to come to this holy table at Christ's invitation. Let us look to page 12 for the order of our worship. <clears throat> 